At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 28, The Malayan Emergency, 1948 to 1951, part one. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. In this episode, we're going to examine one of the forgotten chapters of the Cold War, the communist insurgency in Malaya, or what came to be known as the Malayan Emergency. Malaya, along with Greece, was one of the first guerrilla wars fought during the Cold War. As always, I apologize for any mispronunciations, and I have to warn you about one of the photos on the website, which may be disturbing to some listeners. The Malayan emergency is often overshadowed by the French defeat in Indochina, the communist triumph in China, and the Korean War, which were being fought simultaneously. However, events and strategies in Malaya influenced other fronts in the Cold War. It influenced British strategy in the Kenyan crisis, American involvement in Vietnam, and American ideas around modernization theory. The concept of hearts and minds, a phrase popular in both the Cold War and the War on Terror, came out of the Malaya emergency, as did the term search and destroy. The emergency has also had some impact on our own time. It influenced American military strategy in Iraq and Afghanistan, especially the approach taken by General Petraeus, and is currently studied as a textbook example of how to fight and win a counterinsurgency. In the media and the public debate, we often see or hear people claim that counterinsurgencies are impossible to win, but the British achieved such victories in both Malaya and Kenya. In this and in future episodes, we will contrast these insurgency victories to the defeats of the Dutch in Indonesia, the French in Algeria, and Indochina, along with the American failure in Vietnam. Moreover, we will look at these victories and defeats in a limited manner in contrast to the current conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. Malaya is about the size of Florida, or England, a pear-shaped peninsula with Thailand its only land border. To the south lay Singapore and Indonesia, primarily composed of dense ancient jungles and swamps. Scientists estimate that the jungle there is one of the oldest on the planet at roughly 100 million years old. Running down the center of the country is a large jungle mountain range, raising to a maximum elevation of about 7,000 feet. The heat and humidity can be suffocating, not to mention its hissing rains. Its jungles teem with life. Elephants, tigers, monkeys, exotic birds, bears, and deer all roam its thick undergrowth. In the swamps, crocodiles lie motionless, and some 130 varieties of snakes call Malaya home. The air is alive with the buzz of insects and mosquitoes, ferocious enough to eat through clothing and uniforms. Over thousands of fat, black, blood-sucking leeches wait for people to brush up against them. After a few days on patrol, soldiers' bodies would be covered in these leeches, especially their genitals. 
Malaya, before the arrival of the Europeans, was composed of small independent kingdoms, sitting astride rich trade lanes that ran from the islands of contemporary Indonesia, north to China, and west to India and the Middle East. Through this trade, the region came to have Hindu, Buddhist, and Islamic cultural influences. The origins of the Malays is unknown, but many people believe that they reached the peninsula from southern India via Sumatra. The Malayans were primarily Muslim and, by 1948, made up about half of the population of Malaya. The interior was inhabited by aboriginal tribes, men who hunted small game with blowpipes and dwelled in a communal houses on the edge of rivers where they cultivated small crops of rice, vegetables, and sugarcane. Anthropologists believe they are descended from Indo-Chinese peoples who migrated there about a thousand years ago. They were mostly animists who believe in every object having a living spirit. They, never count, they were never counted in censuses prior to 1948, uh, but their estimated population was at between 50 to 100,000. Starting in the first century AD, Chinese and Indian merchants soon came to Malaya and lived in the towns and cities around the coast. By 1948, about 2 million Chinese lived in Malaya. Many had been born in Malaya, but had roots back in China, and, and many felt alienated from the wider Malayan society. By 1948, half a million Indians lived in Malaya, primarily as a transitory labor force. They worked primarily on the rubber plantations and came mainly from southern India. They earned twice as much in Malaya as they could back home, and they typically worked and saved enough money to return home and buy a plot of land. By the 15th century, Islam became the predominant religion in Malaya, although Hindu retained a strong following, particularly in the rich state of Kadi. Kadi's trade w uh, was through the port of Malacca and was under Dutch control. Between 1765 and 1800, a series of treaties were signed between the British, who were in India, and the Kadi, guaranteeing their safety for 7,000 Spanish dollars per year from Dutch rule. Siam invaded Kadi in 1821, and Britain failed to live up to her promises, losing influence in the region, but did take in the fleeing sultan. Siam continued to hold sway in Kadi until 1909, when Kadi was brought under British protection and made a client state. Meanwhile, the port cities and settlements around the western coast of Malaya had been prospering. Uh, Maleka had come under British control in 1795, and in 1818, Thomas Raffles received a commission from the Governor-General of India to establish a trading port in what is now southern Malaya, and in February 1819, he signed a treaty with the ruler of Johor, uh, granting the British the right to settle on the island of Singapore. By the mid-19th century, Singapore became a prosperous port city and a bastion of the British East Empire in the Far East. In 1867, Singapore, along with its ports and settlements on the west coast of Malaya, became incorporated into a crown colony of the Straits Settlement. The British, for the most part, did not interfere in the internal affairs of the Malayan states, but the strong British presence in the area kept other powers like Japan and America at bay. Tin mines and cash crops flourished in Malaya, which resulted in an influx of Chinese and Indian laborers. This prosperity, however, was threatened by interstate rivalry between the various Malayan kingdoms. As a result, systematically, between 1874 and 1914, they were united under British auspices into a Malayan federation with a central government in Kuala Lumpur. 
A British resident or advisor was appointed to each state, and under their influence, the kingdoms were modernized. This resulted in a period of further economic expansion. The sultans of these kingdoms saw their authority decline, but their wealth grew significantly. The sultans became very educated and sophisticated. Indeed, the sultan of Johor was so wealthy that he dined off gold plates and gave 500,000 pounds to the British during World War II. Europe was now more accessible with the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869 and a Malayan railway system which was built in 1884. A British doctor, Malcolm Watson, campaigned vigorously for the clearance of swamps and streams in order to prevent the breeding of mosquitoes and malaria. As a result of these efforts, the disease was reduced to a fraction of its former levels. The production of rubber also boomed during this period, replacing coffee as the major crop at the end of the 19th century. By the 1920s, isolated communities were linked by new roads and internal air routes were established. Communism also made its way to Malaya via China starting in the 1920s. Chinese communists gained control of the labor movement in Malaya, and in 1929, the Malayan Communist Party was founded, the MCP. From the beginning, the MCP was intent on throwing out the British and establishing a communist state in Malaya. The MCP made powerful inroads with the Chinese community, but was less successful with recruiting Malayans and Indians, and remained primarily Chinese throughout its history. The MCP concentrated on increasing its hold on the labor force despite being outlawed in 1937. It was strong enough to ferment serious strikes, but the British were still firmly in control of Malaya. By the late 1930s, Malaya was exporting a quarter of a million tons of rubber and 80,000 tons of tin and tin ore a year, having become one of the most valuable colonies of the empire. Ironically, the Soviet Union became one of the major consumers of Malaya's tin. These riches had not gone unnoticed, and, though, and in 1941, Japan invaded Malaya in order to capture these resources for its ever-growing war machine and its own imperial ambitions. The British had suspected an attack on Malaya to come from the sea and was ill-prepared for the land invasion which followed. The Japanese made land landings in northern Malaya and slowly marched south, flanking the British troops by using the jungle, which British and Imperial troops had not been trained to fight in. By February 1942, Singapore fell and 130,000 Imperial troops were captured. Japanese rule of Malaya was brutal. The Chinese suffered the worst with an estimated 50,000 mass executions as the Japanese saw the Chinese inhabitants as collaborators who had been aiding their brethren in China against Japanese occupation there as Japan had been fighting a war in China since 1937. As a result of this persecution, thousands of Chinese became squatters who lived in huts on the edge of the jungle. They had no title to the land but made small farms where they could, growing crops and raising pigs, ducks, and chickens. Squatters had exi existed quite some time before Japanese occupation, but from 1942 on, the population exploded as Chinese escaped the cities. By 1948, they had numbered one out of every ten people in Malaya. Initially, when the war broke out, the MCP continued to foment unrest, but when the Soviet Union was invaded, quickly switched gears to support the government in the global struggle against fascism. With the fall of Singapore, the MCP became the only group in Malaya capable of resistance.
they, along with some surviving British and Imperial forces, escaped into the jungle to fight against the Japanese. It was this initial force that was organized into what became the Malayan People's Anti-Japanese Army as time went by, and its numbers grew as non-communist Chinese soon joined its ranks to fight against the Japanese. In its first year, it gained some success against the Japanese, but by 1943, it was short of arms, ammunition, and other supplies, and was in danger of being wiped out. In February 1943, British SOE raised a force of former Malayan residents and trained them in guerrilla tactics and jungle warfare. They were dropped into Malaya with arms and supplies to meet up with and to train the Malayan People's Army. The British continued to drop and smuggle supplies to the communists over the next two years, supplying some 3,500 small arms. Yet most of these weapons and supplies were used to fight against their rivals, the overseas Chinese anti-Japanese army, which was composed and sponsored by the Kuomintang. Back in China, the Kuomintang and the communists were fighting a brutal civil war, which we will be, of course, examining in a future episode. After a protracted struggle between the two groups, the communists were able to push the Kuomintang into a remote part of northern Malaya. By mid-1945, the Malayan People's Army had caused very little damage to the Japanese, but had grown to a force of some 11,000. The surrender of the Japanese in August 1945 surprised everyone as the British were preparing a massive invasion of Malaya by British and Imperial forces from India in which the Malayan People's Army was expected to play a critical role. However, American use of the atomic bomb and Soviet Union's entry into the war convinced Japanese leadership to surrender. The communists soon emerged from the jungle and set about taking control of towns and cities before the British arrived. They set up people's committees in towns and villages and tried and executed traitors, as we've seen in other countries like Italy and France after the war. In much of the country, law and order had collapsed. Many of the Malayan police had collaborated with the Japanese. And as a result, with the Japanese surrender came a wave of crime across the country, as many areas lacked an effective police force. Lai Tech, who's pictured on the website, was the leader of the MCP and could have very easily captured most of the country and established a communist state. However, the British had an ace up their sleeves the entire time. Lai Tech, the chairman of the Malayan Communist Party, was a British spy. Lai Tech's origins are unclear, but we believe that he was half Chinese and Vietnamese, born in Vietnam. It is believed that he was a spy for the French in Indochina, but after being discovered, he was sent to Malaya to work for the British. Light Tech joined the MCP in 1934, and all of his rivals were mysteriously arrested. By 1938, he became Secretary General of the MCP. Although many of the MCP's top personnel managed to flee Singapore before its fall, Light Tech did not and was picked up in a Japanese sweep shortly after. Although most communists were executed by the Japanese, Lai Tech walked free a few days later. Based on later evidence, including documents in the Japanese archives, it now appears most likely that Lai Tech saved his life by promising to act as a Japanese agent. Therefore, Lai Tech positioned the MCP to work with the British once they returned to Malaya in late August 1945. In September 1945, a British military administration was established in Kuala Lumpur, and by mid-October, the British had stationed troops throughout the country, restoring order. 
Much of the Malayan police force had to be screened and retrained to weed out collaborators. Hence, the army had to police communities until the police could be reorganized. This proved difficult as the troops didn't speak the local languages. Moreover, they were virtually unable to prevent the MCP from carrying out reprisals and assassinations against enemies. These actions led to reprisals by the Malays, and a dangerous situation developed between Malays and Chinese, which could have resulted in an ethnic civil war. The British, in response, started to clamp down on the MCP. They refused to recognize the MCP's People's Committees and had them disbanded. They imposed restrictions on left-wing propaganda, and all members of the various armed resistance movements were required to surrender their arms. The MCP, under the leadership of Litek, complied, and some 6,800 fighters turned in their arms. In exchange, each fighter, which included men and women, received $350, a sack of rice, and a job. Moreover, the MCP hid a portion of their arms in the jungle. The British, moreover, were not aware that the MCP had recovered a great number of weapons and ammunition and supplies in the waning days of the war as Japanese forces surrendered. These Japanese arms were also hidden away as an insurance policy. Economically, Malaya was close to collapse. There were acute food shortages across the country. The economy, as a result of the war, had grinded to a halt. During the late war, there was no way to ship Malaya's rubber and tin. Unemployment became widespread, and disease and malnutrition haunted the countryside. Out of this, the MCP became the undisputed leader of the Chinese people in Malaya as a result of their anti-Japanese activities during the war. The Kuomintang was no longer a significant force in Malayan politics. However, the MCP lacked a clear plan about how to move forward. Lai Tak, who had come under suspicion for treason, favored working with the British, opposed to a younger faction who had cut their teeth in the, in the People's Malayans Army, fighting against the Kuomintang and the Japanese, who advocated a policy of confrontation. Lai Tak came under investigation and eventually fled with the party's funds to Singapore and then disappeared. Some claimed that he escaped to Hong Kong or Japan. However, Chin Ping, his successor, claimed that he had him assassinated in Bangkok. Chin Ping, who's pictured on the website as well, was a leader in the Malayan People's Army during the war and was decorated by the British for, for, for his efforts during the Second World War. He even met Lord Mountbatten. Chin Peng was very intelligent. He uh, spoke six languages, including English fluently. He had joined the party at 18 and was one of the youngest Communist Party leaders at 26. He had been trained in jungle warfare by the British, and Chin Peng had worked closely with them given his mastery of the English language. The British, meanwhile, renewed their policy from the 1930s of uniting the country for eventual future independence and dominion status. The proposal that emerged in late 1945 called for the nine Malayan states and the two British settlements to be merged into a single Malayan Union. Singapore would remain a crown colony. All the Malayan states would cede their sovereignty to this new state. All ethnic groups, Malays, Chinese, Indians, and others, were, would be eligible for citizenship so long as they were born there or had lived there for a prescribed period of time. This would allow Malaya to ha have more political autonomy and the British to retain the trade and revenues and bases of Singapore. 
The Malays, along with a number of influential British leaders, rejected the proposal. The colonial office, realizing their mistake, invited the Malays to discuss the future of their states. From these talks emerged a new structure that called for a new Malayan federation headed by a British high commissioner. Each of the nine states was to have a chief executive and a deputy, both Malays, and a British advisor attached, with no executive powers. The ethnic Chinese and Indians did not like this new government as they wouldn't have citizenship in the new state. The MCP quickly set about making alliances with other left-winning groups against what they saw as Anglo-Malayan control of the country. They linked up with the Malayan, uh, Malay Nationalist Party, which had strong ties with Indonesia, and the Malayan Democratic Union in Singapore. They tried to fight against this new state with strikes and protests. During this period, the MCP had built up its strength in the trade unions and had come to control 200 out of the 277 operating in the country. 1947 saw over 300 communist-backed strikes and paralyzed rubber plantations and tin mines. Strikes and workers' demonstrations often turned violent, and the Malayan police fired on strikers and killed many. Despite the strikes and street violence, the political left ultimately failed, and the Malayan Federation came into existence on February 1, 1948, replacing the Malayan Union. The new MCP leadership decided to escalate things and target rubber plantation bosses and tin miners in response. In the first move to push out the British and establish a communist republic in Malaya, you may be thinking, are these guys nuts? How did they expect to defeat the might of the British Empire? And at this point, I think it might be important to remember the context of the time and the zeitgeist of the moment. The Dutch were being pushed out of Indonesia. The French were fighting the Viet Minh in Indochina. The Chinese Civil War was raging, and in Europe, the Czech government had been overthrown. The Greek government was battling communist insurgents. The fate of Italy hung in the balance, and Berlin would be blockaded that summer. Moreover, only the year before, the British had withdrawn from India and Palestine. It was the Brit Britain's weakest point since 1783. The MCP believed the moment was right. If they could drive out the Japanese, who had defeated the British, they would make short work of the British themselves. Jinping's forces were split into two wings, one a strike force operating from the jungle, the other be composed of ordinary people spread throughout the country, responsible for finding supplies and money along with getting intelligence reports to the strike force. They came from all walks of life, including doctors, janitors, taxi drivers, and school teachers. They were called the Minyun, or Masses Movement. Some of the money and supplies came from willing supporters, whereas others were extorted. Qingping believed that as their successes mounted, more of the population would join the Minyun, and the, that the bulk of the Chinese peasants would support the uprising. The new army was called the Malayan People's Anti-British Army, armed with the hidden British and Japanese weapons we spoke about earlier. The active strength of the MCP in 1948 was about 12,500 of which an estimated 2,300 were jungle fighters. The army was organized into 11 regiments, each deployed to its own district in Malaya. Each regiment had about two to 500 troops and comprised of both men and women. Each regiment also had a platoon of assassins, which contained about 60 to 70 soldiers. 
Most communists were located locally and continued to operate from their homes in the early war, taking part in operations and then returning uh, to normal life, making it difficult for security forces to identify them. They would be paid $30 a month uh, for being a soldier and were issued a khaki uniform. They would use hit-and-run tactics in terror, killing their enemies and then melting away into the jungle, giving them the element of surprise. Chinping also established a courier system that allowed him to coordinate the war, though the regiments operated independently when necessary. The MCP also enforced strict party discipline throughout the army and the Minyun. Political officers were assass- assigned to each unit uh, down to the smallest group and could countermand the orders of any officer. In the Minyun, uh, they were organized into committees from the state to the village level, where strict party discipline was enforced. Chin Peng's order of battle called for four steps. The first was to attack the rubber plantations and tin mines near the edge, the jungle's edge. These attacks would disrupt the economy and scare the Europeans away. At the same time, they would also attack the police and uh, drive them out of small towns and villages. At this time, there were thousands of European planters, mostly British and Malaya, and they were running estates of varying size belonging to rubber companies like Dunlop or Goodyear or smaller ones frequently owned by rich Chinese. The planters received a salary, bonus, and a bungalow for their family, though many were bachelors and often moved from one estate to the next. Step two would be to create liberated areas or zones cleared of Europeans. Step three would be to link up these liberated zones, and step four would be to attack and capture the cities of the country. If Singapore fell to communism, it would endanger the east-west trade and would threaten Indonesia and Thailand with possible communist insurgencies and strategically endanger Australia, the Philippines, and New Zealand as Singapore could become host to Soviet naval and air forces in the region. By mid-June, the scale of the violence throughout the country called for drastic actions. On the 16th, the federal government declared an emergency and the military was called in to help restore order. The government was careful not to call what was happening a war because if they did, the insurance companies would refuse to pay on the damages of the miners and the rubber plantations. The High Commissioner, Sir Edward Ghent, totally mismanaged the situation. When miners and and planters had warned him earlier in the year of the situation and asked for protection and weapons, he told them that they were being alarmist and were exaggerating things. It wasn't until the papers turned against him that he came out and declared an emergency. All police leave was canceled. Police on vacation were recalled. He asked the army for assistance, and they immediately issued what Sten guns they had to the police, miners, and planters. That's also pictured on the website. The government was given the stringent powers of search, detention, and curfews uh, were set. Within days, the streets of major cities had, had changed, and police on uh, traffic duty had been issued revolvers. In contrast to the MCP, the security forces had 10,223 police and 11 army battalions, three Milan, six Gurkha, and two British battalions. Each battalion consisted of about 900 men. The Gurkha were shock troops of the British Empire, trained mercenaries from Nepal. They are recruited from adverse conditions and were tough and loyal fighters, often referred to as the Asian Spartans. 
The RAF and or uh, Far East Command had about a hundred aircraft, all based in Singapore, as they had closed the airbase in Kuala Lumpur. Quickly, though, the base was reopened and set up a joint operations command to work with the army, the police, and government. In terms of aircraft, they had 16 Spitfires, 8 Bristol Bowfighters, and 4 short Sunderlands flying, flying boats, all of which can, you can check out on the website. They also had 9 Mosquitoes and 2 Spitfire photo reconnaissance aircraft that provided the majority of photographic intelligence in the early war until 1953. Visual reconnaissance was provided by our old friends from the Berlin Airlift, DC-3s, and Austeers. Visual reconnaissance typically required planes to climb to about 3,000 feet, uh, where pilots and spotters would scan for enemy forces with binoculars. The DC-3, or as the British called them, Dakotas, also provided much of the transport capability during the war and voice aircrafts that circled above the jungle with recorded messages. By 1956, these voice aircraft were flying an average of 75 sorties a month. The government also formed the Ferret Force in these early days, composed of former British members of Force 136, who tracked deep into the jungle to attack communist camps. No one expected Ferret Force to have a large impact, but it was a temporary measure to help close the gap until the army could deploy more troops. They also brought in Daek trackers from Borneo to help find the communist camps. Despite its strength on paper, though, the government was decentralized with 11 separate governments. Ghent also had very little contact with the Malayan sultans or the Chinese merchants who controlled a great deal of the economy. Ghent believed that with independence in the distant future, he couldn't be seen to favor any one group in the country, which meant he isolated himself politically from all but the British residents, many of whom were not very fond of him either. On top of all this, the police were bitterly divided, with many refusing to speak with each other. During the Second World War, some police had stayed on active duty as the country fell and were subsequently jailed, while others escaped to the jungle to fight with Force 136. Those who stayed behind resented those who escaped as they believed that they had shirked their duty. Ghent was subsequently called home for consultations, but he was to be sacked. Unfortunately, the plane that he was traveling home in collided with another plane over London, and he was killed. Malaya was transformed as a nation as thousands of miles of barbed wire crisscrossed the land like some new steel jungle. Roads were blocked. Checkpoints were set up across the country, and soldiers could be seen everywhere. Jinping's plan wasn't unfolding as he thought, though. The planters and miners were not scared off. Instead, they armed themselves and intended to fight off the communists. Tappers, who were predominantly Indians and Chinese, also came under attack by the communists, and many of the Europeans felt a responsibility for their safety of their workers. A month into the emergency, the security forces scored a win by killing Lao Yu, uh, Chen Ping's military advisor who had organized the Malayan People's Army and who had greatly studied Mao's works on revolution. Police Lieutenant Two Guns Bill Statford, who carried two revolvers and ran a team of 20 Chinese detectives, had hunted him down. The Chinese called him Iron Broom. Involved with the criminal underworld, Bill inevitably built up a network of double agents and part-time informers who were rewarded for turning in communists and giving up weapon stashes. They were rewarded $50 for a machine gun, $10 for a rifle, and a dollar for every bullet. 
And in the early days of the emergency, it was easier to pay for weapons caches than to pay them to turn in their fellow Chinese. Nevertheless, it took months for the police to organize, and despite the army being deployed across the country, they could not prevent attacks. No sooner would the enemy appear in one region, only to reappear in another. That summer, the army with the police mounted one of its first operations to gain some jungle fighting experience. Six Malayan regiments supported by a Gurkha regiment and led by former Force 136 and Chindit officers who had served in Burma during World War II led this force against the remnants of the Kuomintang army in Malaya, which we, which we spoke about earlier, who had turned to banditry. The operation, though a success, wasn't anything to write home about. Many of the men were not experienced jungle fighters, and they suffered in the heat, bugs, and leeches. The RAF initially performed very well, given the limited number of aircraft, but the Spitfires were old and dating back to World War II, and began to suffer from mechanical breakdowns. One accidentally fired a rocket into a village, killing a civilian. Out of these experiences, the army developed a plan of using small forces to seek and destroy communist forces in the jungle, which had some initial success. However, the communist attacks were only intensifying, and by the end of the year, they were averaging 50 attacks a week. Moreover, during many of these early sweeps, atrocities were committed by British soldiers against squatters suspected of being communist supporters, including beheadings. The public really didn't know how bad the situation was, though, as the newspapers had been censored and only a fraction of what was happening was being printed. In September 1948, a new High Commissioner was appointed to replace Ghent, Sir Henry Gurney. Gurney had been Chief Secretary in Palestine during the last two years of the British Mandate and had experience with counterterrorism. Gurney's first decision was that the military could not take control of the conflict, as he argued it was essentially a political struggle. He believed that he, what was needed was a military support for a political struggle, not political support for a war. The army naturally thought otherwise. Gurney argued if the army was given its way, it would escalate the situation, inevitably killing civilians, resulting in a hatred of the British authority, only fueling Chin Peng's revolution. As he said, it's all very good having bombers, masses of helicopters, and tremendous firepower, but none of those will eliminate a communist cell in a high school, which is recruiting 50 recruits a year for the insurgent movement. Gurney pointed out that only a fraction of the population was active members in the MCP, and in this type of war, one stray bomb that killed one innocent child could make thousands of enemies. He argued that it was better to police villages than to destroy them, a fundamentally different situation than the Americans in Vietnam, who were, where it was argued sometimes a village had to be destroyed to save it. Gurney's second plan was to uproot the 600,000 Chinese squatters living on the edge of the jungle. This would be a huge undertaking, but through this the British hoped to achieve two goals. The first was to give the squatters grants of land so that they would have a stake in the country, and the second was to deprive the Malayan People's Army from its base of support in the Chinese community. These squatters supplied food and supplies and could operate as spies for the communists. Those that opposed working with the MCP were ruthlessly murdered, or worse, their wives and children were murdered to make an example of in the community. However, Chin Ping did try to keep the killing to a minimum, not to have the people turn against them. 
popular men within the community would not be killed by the communists but discredited. They would be accused of rape or corruption to destroy their reputation in the eyes of the community. The British naturally saw the squatters as spies and potential enemies, but in fact most squatters were simply terrified people caught in the crossfire between the British and the communists, trying to keep as far as possible from both sides. The squatters were being killed and intimidated from both sides. Therefore, Gurney believed that if he could protect them in the new villages, they would not only deny the communists of support, but would become land-owning citizens and backers of the government. Gurney selected former General Sir Harold Briggs to head up the effort and become the civilian director of operations. Briggs had a distinguished military career, including fighting in Burma during World War II, but Briggs would be a civilian head in Malaya reflecting Gurney's desire for the government and not the military to manage the war effort. Gurney also had the head of the police sacked and replaced by Nicole Gray, who had been the head of police in Palestine during, during Gurney's tenure. Gray recruited several hundred former Palestinian police who had formerly worked for him and were out of the job in Britain. To the Malayan police, these newcomers set upset the seniority system and added a third faction to the already divided police department. Gray quickly got the force more weapons and established a radio network which helped to coordinate efforts greatly. The police also got the power to detain suspects for up to two years without, the tr without trial and the death sentence became mandatory for any suspects convicted of carrying arms. Houses could be searched without a warrant, curfews were imposed, and all movement of food controlled with it without warning. Judges and police were also allowed to banish people from the country. However, he refused to armor police vehicles, saying he didn't have enough for all, so all should go without. This resulted in tragic losses and a loss in morale, as some police went ahead and armored their vehicles on their own, often getting in trouble for doing so. Gurney also put an $80,000 bounty on Chin Ping's head, dead or alive, and started a nationwide national registration. Now, every man, woman, and child over 12 had to possess an identity card bearing a thumbprint and photograph. This was another long, laborious process requiring many months to complete. Photographers, many of whom were Chinese, had to be cajoled to do the task as they feared reprisals from the communists. This acted as an unofficial census and would help when it came time to grant citizenship. No communist soldier, of course, dared to come forward for a card, yet if a man or woman was questioned and could not produce a card, he was immediately a suspect. In response to the national registration, Chen Peng's uh, uh, stepped up attacks. Government registration teams visiting remote areas were also attacked. Villages were raided for ID cards. Buses halted and every card collected and burned. Eleven photographers were assassinated. One photographer was pegged to the ground and left to be eaten by ants in the blistering sun. And when he cried for water, rice was stuffed down his mouth. On another occasion, as tappers and their families were watching a free movie, their camp was attacked. The communists demanded their identity cards and burned them. After this, they selected four children to be executed for the village cooperating with the government. In Johor, an eight-year-old girl was burned to death when her father refused to surrender his identity card. 
Communist propaganda also insisted that the registration was a method by which the government could levy high taxes and conscript the young men into the army. Tens of thousands of these messages as paper slips were attached to trees written in Tamil for Indians, uh, Chinese, and Malayan. They threatened death to the running dogs, a.k.a. collaborators, who registered and urged people to burn their identity cards. By early 1949, 482 police, troops, and civilians, including 24 British planters and miners, had been killed and another 404 wounded. Communist losses stood at 406 dead with 268 arrested. Many in the party were disappointed with the way the revolution was going. They felt that the campaign had been badly directed, as they had failed to achieve their first step in the revolution, driving the European planters and miners out of their isolated plantations and mines. Several Chinese Red Army officers also came to help provide advice. The name of the army was also changed, the Malayan Races Liberation Army, to attract support amongst more of the Indian and Malayan population, and an intense effort was mounted to recruit more Malays. Chin Peng also updated his courier system. Jungle travel, especially when harassed by security forces and with roadblocks throughout the country, meant it was taking months for messages to reach his units stationed across the country. Therefore, the distance between the post uh, offices were shortened and more postmen were recruited. This kept the messages more secure as each postman would only know two secret post offices, where he picked up the message and where he delivered it. He also picked one of his top lieutenants, Li Ming, a great organizer to head up the operation. He gave her enough money to rent a small room, get a job as a day laborer in the local tin mine, which provided her a degree of cover and movement, and he also ordered that she buy a desk with a secret compartment. Meanwhile, the government continued to develop its sticks and carrots approach. A new government regulation, 17D, now gave the British the power to uproot entire villages and send them to detention camps if they discovered evidence that they were supporting the communists. In all, some 6,343 were detained in addition to some 9,062 people being deported to China and another 460 to India. More troops were also deployed to Malaya from throughout the empire, including the King's African Rifles, Fijian troops, and Anzacs, including heavy weapons and special forces, which included two field batteries, one field artillery regiment, one commando brigade, four SAS squadrons, and a parachute regiment. More Spitfires, Sunderlands, uh, Bio fighters were deployed to Kuala Lumpur, including 16 Hawker Tempests and Bristol Light uh, Brigand Light Bombers, uh, but still demand for airstrikes outpaced supply. The Royal Navy's air arm also helped to meet this need as Fireflies and Seafires from the carrier uh, HMS Triumph uh, arrived in theater, providing 388 sorties in November and December 1949. Many of these airstrikes were conducted on behalf of the police, but when planes bombed civilians by accident at police direction, uh, the practice was halted and airstrikes were only directed by the army. On the carrot side, a plan for national insurance was announced, along with plans around free education, land grants, and free supplies for agricultural development. After a few years, a rubber tapper uh, would have several thousand dollars invested in the government, knowing he would be paid when he retired, making him more likely to side with the government in the war.
Gurney and Briggs also began the massive project to move 600,000 squatters into new villages. This was no cheap operation either, costing the, the government an estimated $41 million. Translators and army officers headed out to the squatter villages and announced that they would be moving to new villages. This was often followed by disbelief and shock on the part of the squatters. Many insisted that they had never aided the communists and shouldn't be punished. Patiently, the Chinese affairs officers explained the benefits of the new villages, clean water, electricity, medical facilities, and schools. It made no difference, though, as most squatters still didn't want to leave their homes. A few tried to run away, but they were quickly caught. Others announced that they would not go, but they were warned that plots were allotted on a first-come, first-served basis, and if they didn't go now, they would miss out on the best housing. Not to mention the subliminal message of arguing with men with Bren machine guns and infield rifles, which motivated many to go. Nonetheless, by most accounts, the British Army behaved well. They patiently helped the villagers to, to gather together their belongings, animals, and elderly in the hot tropical heat, helping them in and out of the trucks. The British Army, in effect, became the largest furniture-moving company in the world that year. Each new village was headed by European camp officers, along with teachers and nurses, to run village clinics and schools. All the land given to the farmers belonged to them, as promised, on long-term leases. However, this land and amenities came at an additional price. They were hemmed in by double barbed wire fences seven feet high, lit by permanent lights at night, and the gates were manned day and night. Villagers were allowed to leave the village during only certain hours during the day and had to return by a certain time. Before leaving, they were searched for co contraband goods they might bring to the communists, and they were barred from carrying food with them outside of the camp. Chin Peng told his followers to fight against the resettlements any way they knew. Squatters were told that they were being sent to concentration camps to be worked to death or to be eliminated. Briggs also attempted to starve the communists by limiting access to food. New villagers, as stated earlier, could not take food out of the camps. In towns and cities, anyone found carrying food had to produce a receipt, including the name and address of the purchaser. They restricted the number of shops and restaurants in any one area and prohibited the movement of all foods by night. Rice was the main target in most searches. Rice was both a strength and a weakness of the communists. A strength because it was an abundant and easy to smuggle, and could be eaten for years given its virtual tastelessness character. On the other hand, if communists were denied rice for long periods of time, they would suffer psychologically and morale would plummet. The British also worked with anti-communist Chinese businessmen like Ching Luk, who formed the Malayan Chinese Association, the MCA, which within a few months recruited 100,000 members and raised $2.5 million to improve conditions for Chinese villagers. Britain also pledged to Malaya that they would receive their full independence once the emergency was over and pointed to the example of India and Burma, where she had kept her word. However, British in Malaya felt that London was not taking the war seriously. Little news about the war appeared in the British press. It was as though the government itself was attempting to play down the emergency. British residents of Malaya were especially angered when the government recognized Mao's communist China in January 1950.
I want to take a quick break here and thank you again for listening and for all of those who have contributed financially over the past year to keep us going. I also want to give a special thanks to Ashur Kunan uh, for your gracious contribution last month. Moreover, I want to thank all of those who have filled out the survey. Thank you. Uh, the consistent message uh, that we have been getting from everyone is that they love the in-depth and original content, and we love to bring you this content. However, uh, securing the necessary books and hosting the website and podcast, not to mention my personal time, all cost money. If you love this in-depth approach uh, that we have taken and looking at the Cold War from different perspectives like we did with our episodes on the Mediterranean, Scandinavia, or the background of the Soviets developing the atomic bomb, please consider becoming a monthly contributor through our Patreon on the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. While there, also feel free to check out the photos for this episode or email us with any questions, comments, uh, we really love your encouragement and any ideas you may have uh, about the show. I got a really great show idea last week from one of our listeners. Now back to the show. After the first year of the war, the communists started to deplete the stockpile of weapons and supplies they had hidden from World War II and had to rely on captured arms and those stolen from the British. Security forces successfully blockaded the coast and it was difficult to smuggle arms and supplies across the Thai border. The MCP also lacked sponsors like Vietnam. The Chinese were involved in their own civil war and the Korean War during much of the emergency and was already supporting the Vietnamese. Moreover, lacking a point of transit, the Soviet Union and China had no way to get arms to the Malayans, even if they wanted. Some communist leaders started to criticize Jinping openly, questioning his timing for starting an armed struggle when most of the people were still tired from the war with Japan and they attacked the Central Committee as, uh, for the brutality of the war against common people, which was causing them to lose the support of the people. Jinping, however, quickly had these naysayers shot and secured his, his rule of the party. At this point, co the communist fighters were operating primarily from jungle bases versus returning home, as security measures had become too dangerous for them to remain amongst the people, and the tempo of operations had increased. Being in the Malayan People's Army was now a full-time job. Many of these jungle bases had been constructed with the help of Force 136. The camps in these days were well organized and clean. They were far from jungle trails in isolated areas, but not too far from the Chinese squatter population and, had cl and were close to fresh water. Each camp had a parade ground, uh, sleeping huts, offices, kitchens, and stores, and were guarded at all times by sentries. Roll call was conducted every day at first light. This was followed by several hours of drill and weapons training. The afternoon was taken up with camp chores and basic guerrilla warfare tactics until the evening meal, which was followed by two hours of political instruction, during which soldiers were encouraged to stand up and self-criticize. By 1951, most soldiers were equipped with the khaki or jungle green uni uniform provided by the Minyun, uh, with boots and a cap with three red stars representing the three races of Malaya. The iron discipline of the jungle camps produced fine soldiers, in, and in those early days, most were enthusiastic, especially among those who learned to read and write in the camps. The communists also began to operate from smaller units. 
larger regiments of three to 400 men were easy targets for the enemy aircraft and artillery. Smaller forces could ambush enemy convoys, uh, steal what they could, and then disappear back into the jungle. They also employed booby traps like sharpened punji sticks to wound or maim British and Malayan soldiers. Meanwhile, British patrols in the jungle declined as more men were needed to guard towns and villages. Those that did continue became increasingly fruitless as they struggled to locate the enemy. Part of the reason for this was because they only patrolled the jungle fringe, hoping to stop the Minyun from supplying the communist army. The other reason was because the communists operated in much smaller groups now. Psychological warfare also became a part of the British strategy in Malaya. Malayan radio broadcasted da daily messages. Leaflets were dropped in the jungles, and voice aircraft flew over the jungle broadcasting messages. The communists instituted a strict death penalty if you were discovered picking up a leaflet. However, with the voice aircraft, communist commanders could not be sure their soldiers were, weren't listening. The British also had a brilliant Chinese psychological warfare expert, CC2. Tu was intimately familiar with Chinese culture and communist ideology, giving him insights into the MCP his British colleagues wouldn't have. Tu argued for a propaganda that respected the communists they were trying to convince to leave. We are all human and make mistakes, Tu explained. Tu also argued that propaganda must be composed of as much hard facts as possible. He knew that in this way, many communist fighters who spent months in the jungle were starved of news, were tempted to pick up a leaflet. He would also drop photos of emaciated communists being captured, together with a later picture of the same man, fat and smiling with a girlfriend. He also dropped photos of the mistresses of high party members and commanders, as he knew the rank-and-file soldiers fighting and dying in the jungles resented this privilege. Women serving in the People's Malayan's army inevitably became mistresses of higher-ranking officers an aspect of jungle life that infuriated thousands of soldiers who had to watch their officers take mistresses while they remained celibate. In 1950, more troops arrived along with nurses and volunteers for the new villages. The police force was expanded and a home guard was established. The first helicopter became operational, an S-51 Dragonfly, which you can check out on the website, and by 1951, 55 casualties were lifted to safety. The Air Force also added more brigands and 14 Avro Lincoln bombers were deployed. They could deliver 71,000-pound bombs in high concentration on targets anywhere in Malaya, day or night, which again you can check out on the website. The United Kingdom would continue a rotation of Lincoln bombers in Malaya throughout the rest of the emergency as a show of British commitment to Malaya and to the Cold War in general. The use of these bombers was very debated. Some argued that the use of these bombers hit the enemy hard, both materially and psychologically. Others argued these bombers were, were needed back in Britain in the event of a war with the Soviet Union versus bombing jungles. The Colonial and Foreign Office complained about the optics of using these aircraft as they brought back dark images of Dresden and the saturation bombing of cities in World War II. However, with the outbreak of the Korean War, a number of aircraft were, were redeployed from Malaya to Korea and Japan to participate in operations there. Late 1950 to January 1951 also saw the Spitfires gradually retired from service, replaced by de Havilland Vampire jet bombers, which you can view on the website. 
However, these units were pulled out of the line until January 1951 for training on their new jet aircraft. The Tempests were also pulled from service and, which were, and were replaced by de Havilland's Hornet F-3, which, again, you can see on the website, developed from the World War II Mosquito. The Hornet was the fastest piston-driven aircraft in the world, carrying four 20-millimeter cannons and a load of bombs and or rockets. Despite the increase in troop numbers, many were still training for jungle warfare, and many were tied down with Briggs' plan for resettlement nor did they seem to be having any effect on the number of attacks. Part of this was a result of the Minyun, who now were carrying weapons, and the fact that the government food restrictions were causing the communists to launch more attacks to secure food supplies, which resulted in more violence and deaths. To the miners and planters, the war seemed to be a stalemate, as Jinping's attacks had only intensified and increased since 1948, and they still believed that London was not taking the war seriously. Then tragedy struck. High Commissioner Gurney was assassinated in broad daylight outside of Kuala Lumpur as his motorcade was ambushed and he was shot dead. The attack was a routine ambush and the communists got lucky. Malaya and Britain were shocked. How could this happen? Obviously, the government couldn't claim that they were winning if the High Commissioner had been assassinated with impunity. In 1950, 646 civilians were murdered, 409 were wounded, and 106 were missing. Security forces had lost 393 men, with another 496 wounded. While communist losses stood at 648 killed, 147 captured, and 147 who had surrendered. By the end of 1950, both sides assumed the other was winning. For the British, the death of Gurney galvanized the British government to take serious action and to commit the resources to winning the war. Within a few weeks of Gurney's death, Labour was voted out of office and Winston Churchill returned as Prime Minister. Meanwhile, despite the coup of Gurney's assassination, Chin Ping's revolution was struggling to get off the ground, despite all the murders and terror. Chin Ping realized that the terror tactics of the MCP had alienated large swaths of the population, even parts of the Chinese population. The people were, were weary of war and terror after three and a half years of occupation. The war in the economy, especially the rubber plantations and mines, had also attacked the livelihood of thousands of people. Therefore, in October 1951, Jinping announced that all unnecessary violence was to be avoided in an attempt to win the support of the people. There would be no more attacks on the new villages. No identity cards would be seized, as well as no attacks against post offices, power stations, or public services. British health officers were off limits as well. Civilian trains were no longer a target, and great care had to be taken when using grenades or shooting in civilian areas. The Minyun were also instructed to use less violence and threats and more promises and progressive measures to secure resources for the revolution from the people. It was clear that Jinping's plan had failed, but the Malayan People's Army was stronger than ever before with some 7,292 men and women under arms. The communist victory in China bolstered morale, and it was believed that they could still win a war of attrition against the British. Churchill, on the other hand, found Great Britain on the verge of economic collapse. He, had, he cut all cabinet ministers' salaries by £1,000 and his own by £3,000. 
Food stocks in Britain were lower than in 1941, and food was still strictly rationed, despite the war having ended six years ago. Overseas, Churchill's immediate concern was Malaya. Quote, if Malaya goes, all the Far East goes, close quote. And he had lost Malaya and Singapore once before and wasn't going to allow it to happen again. At this point, 3,000 men and women had died in Malaya, and the war was costing $500,000 a day. In Churchill's mind, Malaya was a part of the wider struggle against communism. 800,000 UN-backed troops were fighting communism in Korea. 100,000 French were fighting uh, communists in Indochina, and 65,000 British and colonial troops were battling communism in Malaya, not to mention some 250,000 policemen. The British air commitment continued in Malaya as well. The Royal Navy again provided carrier support as in 1949 via carriers returning from the Korean War. The RAF also introduced uh, Vickers Villettes uh, as well to help replace the aging DC-3s still in service, although the DC-3 continued to fly throughout the conflict. Churchill's first act was to send Colonial Secretary Oliver Layton to fly to Malaya and report back on the situation. Uh, Layton found the police deeply divided and promptly dismissed the police uh, commissioner, Gray. Briggs, whose term was ending and was in bad health, also met with Layton, explaining that despite his title of director of operations, he lacked the authority to get things done. He complained that the war was being fought by half measures. It was argued that one man should have the absolute authority of both civilian, the civilian bureaucracy, police, and the military, sort of like the dictator of the old Roman Republic days. By the middle of 1951, 400,000 squatters had already been settled in new villages, and it was decided that in order to make them better citizens and to give them a further stake in the new system, they would be allowed to elect their own village uh, councillors. The British would show a movie and explain to the new villagers that their newly elected councillors would run the village affairs. The only challenge was getting people to stand for election. Most of the people were afraid the communists would kill them as soon as they left the village. Naturally, the MCP's reaction to these elections was violent. On one occasion, four councillors were kidnapped and the communists cut one of their men's arms off and sent it to their wives, demanding food, and that if they did not send the food in a week, they would send the, the man's other arm. As a result of these government restrictions on food, the communists started to grow vegetables, rice, sugar, and even tobacco in their jungle bases. These were easily spotted, though, from the air and attacked with chemicals by the British. The communists soon changed tactics, dispersing their crops and making them more difficult to detect from the air. 1951 was one of the bloodiest years for both sides. The communists lost 1,077 killed, 121 captured, and 201 who surrendered, whereas security forces lost 504 killed and 691 wounded. 553 civilians were killed and 356 wounded and 153 missing. The main communist attacks were still the rubber plantations. Thousands of trees were cut down or burned along with factories and homes of managers and laborers, oftentimes uh, killing the wives and children of rubber managers. As always, thanks for listening. So remember to tune in June the 1st to catch the conclusion of the Malayan emergency. If you really like this episode or any of the episodes, feel free to share them on social media. If you don't have a lot of friends in the history, give us a good rating on iTunes or the platform of your choice. And don't forget to check out this episode's photos on the website. 
While there, feel free to contact us with questions or show ideas or follow us on social media. And if you want to contribute to us financially, consider becoming a monthly supporter through Patreon. Even a dollar, a few dollars a month uh, can go a long way in helping us. And as always, feel free to fill our survey there so that you can help us to bring you a better show. Fitness, you can get down with your judgment free self. Join for only one dollar down, ten dollars a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only one dollar down, ten dollars a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.